Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Greetings. My name is Angela Saylor and I'm the Vice President of the Edwin J. Fulner Institute at the Heritage Foundation. And on behalf of our President, Kay Coles James, I'd like to welcome you to our three-part series, Bolstering the American Story, A Legacy of Freedom, 1620 and the Mayflower Compact. We are very excited about our partnership with Dr. Eric Patterson and the Religious Freedom Institute as we celebrate the 400th anniversary of the signing of the Mayflower Compact. As you know, this happened on November 11, 1620. Part three of our series is titled The Mayflower Compact and the Foundations of Property Rights, Liberty and Prosperity. Another fruit of liberty valued by the founders is the idea and practice of America as a commercial republic. The United States is not a European social democracy. American capitalism is based on natural rights to life, liberty, and property, and nourished by the rule of law and the economic principles fostered by the United States Constitution. It has been built from bottom up on the practical wisdom and experience of generations. The result, our system of democratic capitalism has lifted millions out of poverty for over 200 years. People from around the planet still wanna to come to America for the economic opportunity which they are denied elsewhere. Our financial system remains the envy of the world. I'd like to introduce to you our first speaker, Dr. Sam Gregg, who is the Director of Research at the Acton Institute. At the Acton Institute, Dr. Gregg oversees research and a team of scholars and is responsible for the oversight of international programming, budgeting, management, and personnel. He has written and spoken extensively on questions of political economy, economic history, ethics and finance, and natural law theory. He has an MA from the University of Melbourne and a Doctor of Philosophy degree in Moral Philosophy and po Political Economy from the University of Oxford. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Sam Gregg. Hello, my name is Sam Gregg, and I am privileged to be a visiting scholar at the Simon Center for American Studies, a department within the Fauna Institute at the Heritage Foundation. One of the wonderful things about the Fauna Institute and the Simon Center is that it is founded to protect traditional American ideas and to share those values with Americans of all backgrounds across the country. We're talking today about the Mayflower Compact and its significance for the United States. And my job today is to talk to you about how this plays out in terms of two very important features of American life that became even more prevalent after the founding, which of course is the commitment to private property on the one hand, as well as economic liberty on the other. When it comes to these subjects, when you look at the Mayflower Compact, we don't see private property or economic freedom referenced specifically. But it's very important to remember a couple of things. First of all, <clears throat> of the 102 passengers on the Mayflower, only 41 of them were pilgrims, pilgrims in the classic sense religious dissenters who had fled England in order to enjoy greater religious liberty in North America, in this new world. They sought a new life in which they could practice their religion in which they should, could choose. 
how they lived out their religious life and beliefs. But at the same time, it's important to remember the rest of the passengers, the rest of the passengers who were called strangers by the pilgrims. Who were they? Well, some of them were merchants. Some were craftsmen. Some were skilled workers. Some were indentured servants. So these are people who came to North America, not necessarily for primarily for religious reasons, but clearly had some other motives. And the descriptions I've just given them of them would indicate that these people had, at least at some level, a strong economic motivation for wanting to come and live in this new world. Indeed, it's also interesting to note that to raise money for the voyage in the first place, the pilgrims signed a contract with a group of London stockholders. And in return for this, the stockholders would share in the profits of the planned colony. And this was one of the reasons why the pilgrims rounded up those who they called the strangers, the merchants, the craftsmen, the skilled workers, to join their enterprise because they recognized that if this enterprise was to succeed, it needed a solid economic foundation. So I think it's very important to keep in mind that particular economic background. It's also important to keep in mind some of the assumptions that the people on the Mayflower brought with them when they came to this new world. Some assumptions that I think that we perhaps take for granted today, but in many cases, I think, were not so taken for granted in much of the world in which the pilgrims lived. So what are some of these assumptions that they brought with them? Well, first and foremost, I think, there's an assumption of private property. Neither the pilgrims nor the strangers were committed to some type of economic collectivism. They certainly believed in charity. They believed in giving and caring for their neighbor, including when it came to helping them materially when they suffered deficiencies in that aspect of their life. But these are not people who are coming to this new world in order to establish some type of collectivist utopia or a communal utopia. Private property is the working assumption that the pilgrims brought with them when it came to the base, most basic economic arrangements, the most basic institutional arrangements that they thought should prevail in this new colony. So that's the first assumption. The second assumption I think they brought with them was a claim on economic freedom. Now, again, that might sound somewhat obvious to us, but this is not a world in which economic freedom was necessarily seen as a given priority. But it's very clear that the pilgrims and the strangers, in fact, everyone who came over on the Mayflower, were looking to live out some type of economic liberty. And much of that involved a commitment to economic creativity. Many of these people, of course, took very seriously the injunction in the book of Genesis to, to be fruitful, to multiply, to till the earth, to make it productive. Not so to sit around and pretend that they were living in a type of Rousseauian paradise. Rather, there was this expectation that through work, and especially through creative work, economic freedom would be expressed and would enable people to essentially start to make themselves better off economically. So private property, economic freedom. A third consumption that's brought to bear here is that we need to remember that the environment, the context from which many of the pilgrims were coming, was essentially one in which there were strong remnants of the economic expressions of feudalism, even in a country like England, which at the time was economically starting to move ahead of much of continental Europe, 
it's important to remember that there were still certain remnants of feudalism, and particularly the economic arrangements encouraged by feudalism, from which the pilgrims were essentially separating themselves from. So they're coming to a world, they're establishing a world in which economic relationships are very much based upon contract, private property, and economic freedom, rather, rather than arrangements in which one group of people are seen as having certain economic obligations to other groups of people by virtue of questions of legal privileges or even privileges associated with your type of social background. So there's this assumption of breaking away from feudalism. There's also in this assumption, a fourth assumption of upward mobility. Upward mobility through work and through economic success. Again, this makes a departure from the feudalism that still prevailed in certain parts of England at the time. But it's also important to remember here that the type of economic assumptions that the pilgrims and the strangers, as they were called, were trying to live out was quite different from the type of arrangements that prevailed in other colonies which had been settled by other European powers at the time. I'm particularly thinking here of France to the north and places like Quebec, and of course, Spain to the south, places like Florida, in Central America, in South America. It's very important to remember here that the type of economic arrangements that were being brought to the Americas by these other great European powers were not assumptions of economic liberty. They were not assumptions in which private property was given such an exalted status. These are not assumptions in which there's a claim to be moving away or breaking away from or dispensing with the type of economic arrangements that we often associate with feudalism. Because in French North America and in Spanish Central and South America, and even in some parts of North America that had been settled by the Spanish, it's very important to keep in mind that the type of economic arrangements that prevailed there were highly influenced by what's called mercantilism, the idea that the state is highly involved in economic life, not in the sense of socialism or collectivism, but rather that the state plays a highly guiding role in structuring economic arrangements, in structuring property arrangements, in ways that the pilgrims and the others involved in the Mayflower conflict com compact would have found very difficult to understand. It's also important to remember here that the type of political arrangements that uh, enveloped the type of economic systems that we found in places like Quebec and in Spanish America were highly overlaid with the political assumptions of absolutism, of political absolutism, whereby people look to the monarch, they look to the state for guidance when it comes to how they live their lives economically, and they take as certain givens that the state has a highly interventionist role to play in much of economic life. And it's true, I think, to say that certainly in Latin America, many of those assumptions that were brought to the Americas by the Spanish when it came to politics and the way that it interacted with economic life still prevail today. So in that sense, the Mayflower Compact is extremely important because <clears throat> it provides a type of political and economic alternative to the mercantilist economic arrangements that are starting to prevail in other parts of the Americas that have been settled by other European powers, as well as the political arrangements that go along with that. So I think that this is, these are all good reasons. When we think about economic liberty and private property and all the institutional arrangements that go along with that, I think this is yet another reason why we should give thanks for the Mayflower Compact not just because of their obvious bravery and courage in venturing to change their political and economic circumstances, but we should give thanks for the economic legacy which they bequeathed America, as well as for their insight 
that economic liberty and strong private property arrangements go hand in hand with the ideal of self-government and the ideal of rule of law that is so written into the Mayflower Compact in which many Americans, thankfully, still value and appreciate today. Thank you very much. Dr. Grigg, that was absolutely incredible. I tell you, your scholarship is bar none, and we appreciate you participating in our program. As we move into our panel discussion on the Mayflower Compact and the foundations of property rights, liberty, and prosperity, I'd like you to imagine American life without private property rights and without a free market system. The foundation that men and women since the nation's birth developed and preserved. The first colonial settlement of Plymouth rejected communal property and successfully implemented the idea of individual property rights by promoting individual initiative and prosperity within the community. Today, the assault on private property rights and the creep of socialism continue to challenge free market principles. So as we prepare to join a discussion to trace the true origins of pro-market thinking from the economic structures of Plymouth and to discover the influence on modern day property rights and economic liberty, I wanna introduce you to Paul Winfrey who will moderate the panel. Paul is the director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Prior to returning to Heritage, Paul served as the deputy assistant to the president for domestic policy. He was also the deputy director of domestic policy council and the director of budget policy, all at the White House. Paul also chaired the uh, deputies committee that oversaw the execution of all domestic policy at the deputy secretary level throughout the entire administration, as well as interagency policy coordination. During the 2016 presidential transition, Paul led the team responsible for the Office of Management and Budget. At the White House, Paul was responsible for developing and ed executing the president's executive order to establish a comprehensive plan for reorganizing the executive branch. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your moderator, Paul Winfrey. Thanks so much for that introduction, Angela. I'm joined today by Sam Gregg, who you've already heard from, and Jim Otteson, who's the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business Ethics at the University of Notre Dame. As Sam mentioned, the compact itself is awfully short. It's only 204 words and reads a bit like a preamble than an organizing document like the US Constitution. That said, it does speak to the importance of organization. Namely, they needed to depend on one another in order to survive. The pilgrims and strangers were, in fact, going into a new and remote land where success was not inevitable. A successful economic system was critical to their survival. And as you mentioned, Sam, the pilgrims and strangers were not trying to create a new society out of whole cloth, but rather they were trying, they were bringing tradition with them. How important do each of you think that economic freedom and property rights were to establishing a successful presence in the new world? Sam, thank you for your remarks and thank you for letting us uh, talk about this, especially as we're coming up on the almost, where I guess we're less than a month away from the 400th anniversary of, this, of the um, Mayflower Complex. So I think your question of how important was economic freedom to what they were able to do, I think was critically important. But one of the things that was that's really striking when you look back at the Mayflower Compact, and especially when you think about it um, in its time, um, the very fact that they sat down and wrote an agreement and all voluntarily decided to sign it already um, implicitly assumes some pretty momentous things. So first of all, they saw themselves as in, a, in an important moral sense, as equals. They were debating with one another and they had, they thought, the right to actually create an agreement. Notice that they didn't, although they acknowledged the king, they didn't ask the king for permission to sign it. They signed it. 
They signed it as peers and equals with one another. So all of that assumes that they are not only moral equals to one another, but they're also capable of understanding what an agreement is. They're capable of understanding the obligations that, the, that this places on themselves and that these are enforceable obligations. And another piece of it that I would point out, and I think this follows from what Sam said, is that um, the, the argument is not we're imposing this by force. It's rather an argument by appeal to reason. And the reason presumes free will. Those two things go hand in hand. So sometimes when we think about tradition or we think about a, a, a moral tradition or a religious tradition, we think about it as, uh, we sometimes think about it as imposing constraints on people that maybe they're not allowed to make certain kinds of agreements or um, come to certain kinds of conclusions on their own, or maybe there are some aspects of dogma that they have to accept without reasoning. I think the Mayflower Compact actually belies all of that. It says, no, each of us is in the image of God, but part of what that means is we are free to say yes or to say no, and we also have the capacity, all of us, have the capacity to reason about what would be the kinds of rules we think we should adopt so that we can mutually uh, pledge ourselves to, um, to the benefit of both us individually and the community. All of that, I think, is encompassed and reflected in those uh, short, that very short Mayflower Compact. The only thing I'd add to what, uh, what Jim just said is uh, this word tradition, I think, is quite important because the pilgrims, and the, those who are with them, the strangers, they're not operating in a type of uh, histor a historical framework. They're bringing with them a tradition, a tradition which takes reason and free will very, very seriously. That's partly a religious influence, obviously, from Christianity, the idea of the Imago Dei, which Jim just mentioned. But they're also bringing a history, a history by which the people or the peoples of, of the British Isles had developed customs and traditions in which these expressions of liberty had become embedded in a way. And let's not forget, they're, they're leaving a situation whereby they find some of those liberties, particularly religious liberties, threatened. The second thing I'd quickly add to that is that liberty has a way of breeding other forms of liberty. <clears throat> if you take things like religious liberty relatively seriously, which I think is sort of part of what they're doing here, it's very hard to confine that appreciation for the importance of freedom simply to questions of faith. It spills over into questions of politics and economics. So things like property rights. Things like rule of law, which we know are very important for economic development, that is part and parcel of the assumptions that these people are bringing with them. And as I said in my remarks, I, I think it helps to explain why the development of much of North America was very different to what you saw happening south of the Rio Grande. It's a really interesting statement by both of you. I mean, so one of the, um, there are a number of concepts that you both mentioned that are not explicitly listed in the Mayflower Compact but that we can still gather from studying the Mayflower Compact. And again, this tradition that the pilgrims and the strangers brought with them uh, to the new world. For instance, uh, the importance of free will. And, um, you know, Jim, I mean, you, you, you've also talked about this, this importance of the, the ability to freely contract. Can, can you both speak to, uh, again, this issue of things that are, that were important to the founding institutions that the uh, pilgrims and strangers brought with them but are not uh, explicitly referenced in the Mayflower Compact? I think what we're seeing there is a transition from a society based on something like status to a society based on something like contract. And that's a very important um, distinction. Um, what they were leaving, as Sam mentioned, what they were leaving was a society that was still very much largely based on your status. So the rights and privileges you enjoyed um, as a subject of the crown were determined and limited to a large extent by the particular class um, that, in which you lived. Um, and different rights and privileges were accorded di uh, differently um, according to which, um, which class you were in. What we're seeing here in the Mayflower Compact and what really did begin to propagate its way through and in the future in North America in particular was this idea that, well, anyone is equal to another when they enter into an agreement. And so what we can do is we can specify 
what particular rights or privileges we would like to um, uh, feel ourselves obligated by or obligate others to within the realm of a contract or an agreement, um, and that's binding. But what stands behind that, and one other thing I would add to that, I'm happy to hear what Sam thinks about that, but, but I think what stands behind that is a conception of the human person as being the bearer of rights from God, but the bearer of rights that are not dependent on the whim of the king or the class in which you live. In other words, they precede the state. They are part of us as human beings in the image of God. So these are rights and freedoms um, connected with the free will that you were just mentioning, Paul. But these are rights and freedoms that we have as human persons. So qua human being, we have these rights. Um, and those are what enable us to meet each other as peers and to come to agreements as peers. Yes, I think that's all true. The other thing I, I would add to this is there is an implicit assumption that's built into the Mayflower Compact, which is only still being worked out in England itself. Remember, we're talking about 20 years before the English Civil Wars, right? So that, which is an epoch-changing event for Britain. But what's interesting about 1620 is that there is this assumption at work in the Mayflower Compact of limited government, that the government, that, that the political order is not there to tell you what to do in every aspect of your life that there's a notion, as Jim's just talked about, with contracts, this is critically important, both politically and economically. There's also, I find interesting, uh, an interesting, a, a fascinating part of this in the sense that the Mayflower Compact doesn't get into all the details of how you organize government. In other words, there's a fair amount of freedom that's being implicitly recognized in this document about how this new political order that's taking place here is going to develop. What's interesting is, on the one hand, it reflects these religious and uh, religious and traditional assumptions that are coming from Western Europe, but it's also a society where they're clearly viewing things as being built from the bottom up, built from the bottom up. And that's crucial, I think, when it comes to not just politics, but that's how you want an economy to be. You don't want an economy in which the state is somehow trying to organize everything in a particular way, which is what you found in much of Spanish uh, America, for example. Instead, you have this bottom-up process. And I think that that is one of the major differences today that marks what you might call the, the American outlook upon political economy, as opposed to much of the outlook upon political economy that you find in continental Europe which even in relatively free societies, it's very much driven from the top down, that there are people there who will organize these things for you. The Mayflower Compact articulates implicitly a very different understanding of how the society, the economy, and the political order is going to develop. And it's not top down, it's bottom up. Paul, Paul, if I could just add one footnote to that, I think there's a, that, that's a very important point that's easy for us today especially to overlook. And that is um, what's, what's going on in the Mayflower Compact, what's reflected in that is the idea that, that not that we only have the freedoms that are specifically enumerated, but rather we have wide indefinite freedom except where specifically prohibited. Um, that's a very different way of looking at the world. In other words, human beings are by nature free, and the only and the only free and and that's indefinitely wide to do indefinitely many things, including economic and other kinds of things. Um, and the only places that we, that they're not free are the ones they specifically agree to limit themselves, rather than the other way around, which is how we often tend to think of it. And I think in the United States context, we often think of say the Bill of Rights as enumerating our only freedoms, as if we're not free in any other way except those few things that are specifically enumerated. This flips that script and says, no, it's just the reverse. We're free in all the ways that are not specifically prohibited. So the, the New World was a resource-rich rich environment. And, um, you know, Sam brought up a couple of instances where there were less successful colonies, in particular in Spanish America. Um, were there any other... Uh, trials or um, uh, colonies, even by English folks in, in the New World that weren't as successful at what was going on in Plymouth? Yeah, I think one of the great examples, I mean, Sam is quite right to talk about the different trajectories that were taken by North America on the one hand and its antecedents, 
And on the other hand, what, what, what went on largely in Central and South America, I think that's uh, very instructive and um, illuminating. But even in America or in North America, there were some interesting experiments that were undertaken. The Jamestown colony, for example, which was founded shortly before. So it was initially founded in 1607. Um, it was founded as a commune. So all the property was explicitly held in common. There was no private property. And instead, what the rule was, was that whatever was produced would be shared equally among all of the, um, all of the households that were part of that commune. Uh, well, what happened in the first year, more than half of them died by, uh, from starvation. Um, they were replenished with more people after that. And again, more than half died the next year by starvation. And just think about that. So this was, you know, in Jamestown, where Jamestown was, there was plentiful fauna and flora. There were fish in the ocean. There was plenty of resources. How could peace, you might ask, how could people possibly starve with that much, um, with that richness of resources? Well, it turned out that people didn't like the idea of tending other people's gardens. In other words, they didn't like the idea of, well, no matter how hard I worked or didn't work, I would still get the same. And if I worked extra hard, I didn't get anything more than anybody else. So they just decided not to work. So they didn't plant. They didn't sow. They would try to, they would only eat what they could catch and eat it at night. Um, and then what happened? Well, in 1614, so seven years later, the then governor, Thomas Dale, finally had enough of that. And he said, we're going to scrap this experiment and we're just going to assign to each household three acres. And the three acres are yours. Do with it what you want. Good luck. The very first year of that, the very next season, um, their production increased seven times. It was a sevenfold increase. Um, now, maybe today that shouldn't surprise us, but um, it's exactly those kinds of experiments that have been run again and again. And that thankfully, many of the North American, you know, in the North American tradition, we learned that lesson. The only thing I quickly add to that uh, is that we have another example of um, a very different approach, which of course is French North America, right? Up in Canada and Quebec. And what's interesting about that is it it's a very different type of settlement. It's not a group of free people coming over and arranging a compact by which they make all the decisions that we've talked about and where freedom is taken for granted. It's very much a colony that's run along mercantilist lines. It's a colony that's run along, in some respects, highly militaristic lines. It's a colony which is more or less uh, ruled as closely as possible from Paris. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see this tremendous economic development happening in the English colonies in North America. And Quebec lags a long way behind. By the time of the, um, <clears throat> the Battle of, um, of the Abraham Plains, which meant the defeat of North, French North America in 1759, effectively, there were only something like 70,000 people living in the French province of Quebec. Whereas in the North American colonies, there were already at least 2 million people. So it's a very good example of how if you found something in roots that take freedom very seriously, you are going to see some very serious differences in economic development compared to those arrangements, those colonial arrangements, those militaristic, those mercantilist arrangements in which the state plays such an enormous role. The first type of uh, hyper-political economy, one that takes freedom very seriously, tends to flourish. The other one, not so much. Living in the, this wealthy world that we live in today, you know, it's, it's easy to take economic growth as an inevitability, but it's these institutions like economic freedom, property rights, the ability to freely contract free will that are so critical to not only establishing different growth paths in our history, but also in, uh, you know, What's going on right now all, all, all around the world and in countries that have good institutions seem to be doing better off. They have free people, they have happier people um, and countries that are um, have less free institutions are just they're just not doing just not doing as well. I have one more question for both of you, and that is, is that um, there's this mythology uh, surrounding the Mayflower Compact where a number of people, including former President John Quincy Adams, have used the compact to build a, uh, a narrative that's sometimes ahistorical. Uh, James Wilson used the compact during the French Revolution to show how the U.S. founding was dissimilar to what was happening in France at the time. 
why, why might that have mattered for what was going on in the U.S. immediately following the American Revolution? And why the desire to show that what was happening in the U.S. was different than what was going on in France at the time? Well, I will let uh, Sam have the final word on this, but I'll just say one thing about it. Um, I think one of the key distinctions between the French Revolution, there are many, but one of the distinct, important distinctions between the French Revolution and the American Revolution was the conception of uh, what do we take these individual people who are conducting the revolution to be and what's their relation to the state. Um, and in the American case, these were, as it were, sovereign individuals. These were full and whole souls. They were complete persons. They had rights that they bore, not as given to them by the state, but in virtue of their nature. And what that meant was that this was a revolution of free people to create a republic of free citizens. That's a very different way of thinking about it um, compared to the French Revolution, where of course, there are many differences, and I'm generalizing, but in general, what you had was we want to create a state that will organize our entire society from the top or from the center, the top down or the center out. Um, and then all of the people in the society are mere pieces to build into this larger whole or to be built into this larger whole. That's a very different conception. And I think thinking about the way we understand ourselves and our role with respect to each other and to uh, to one another as citizens and also to our government, um, that goes a long way towards explaining the very different kinds of trajectories that those two revolutions took. Well, let me add something that I think complements what Jim just said, and it's this. The American Revolution, I think it's important to keep in mind, was in many respects a defense of what the American colonists to be, believed to be things that they already had, certain rights, certain understandings of who they were, certain political entitlements that they thought they already had, and even some economic rights that they believed that they already had. And they, was, they saw themselves as defending this, these things, these rights of Englishmen, as they were often called, against a government that they believed was hell-bent on overturning these things. In France, uh, it was very different insofar as <clears throat> it's really an attempt almost to create a new man, a new man and a new society. It's not a sense of defending long acquired traditional rights <clears throat> that emphasized freedom. It's really about creating an entire new society. <clears throat> and anything that gets in the way of that, whether it's the church, whether it's local associations, whether it's strong civil society formations, all of those things were not looked upon kindly by the French revolutionaries because they saw those things as getting in the way of creating almost a type of utopia. So in that sense, you can almost say that the, the American Revolution, in some respects, is about conserving many of these long acquired rights, some of which, of course, are expressed in the Mayflower Compact, by contrast with France, where it's about constructing, constructing a new man a new society. And when governments get in the business of trying to create new societies, let alone an entirely new conception of who human beings are, in which human nature plays no role whatsoever in when you're thinking about this, it's not surprising that you end up with guillotines, you end up with repression, and you often end up with war. Sam, Jim, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, happy 400th anniversary to the Mayflower Compact. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. Thank you, panelists and, and Paul Winfrey for an incredible discussion. The fun isn't over though. Ladies and gentlemen, I wanna introduce you to Dr. Peter Wood. He is going to be our next speaker. In his new book, 1620, a critical response to the 1619 project, he explains why the proper starting point for the American story is 1620. He points out that a nation as complex as ours, of course, has many starting points, but the birth of our nation is marked by the Declaration of Independence in 1776. The quintessential ideas of American self-government and ordered liberty grew from the deliberate actions of the Mayflower immigrants in 1620. 
As president of the National Association of Scholars, Dr. Wood leads a network of scholars and citizens with a commitment to academic freedom and excellence in higher education. Before he was appointed president of the National Association of Scholars, he served as the organization's executive director and as provost to the King's College in New York City. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Peter Wood. The Mayflower Compact is a conceptual starting point for the American experiment. That's not all that easy to say these days because the topic is disputed. The New York Times' 1619 project gives credit to the year before 1619 when a pirate ship called the White Lion landed a cargo of African slaves at Jamestown. Is that a better conceptual starting point? I don't think so. Let me see if I can explain this. The real creation of the United States is, of course, in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. But there was a lot that happened before these colonies came together and decided that they were going to rebel against the British crown. The Mayflower Compact is 400 years ago, November of 1620 is when it was signed on board the Mayflower before it had actually landed at Plymouth. But even before the Mayflower, a great deal of history happened. Some of that history we know is the history of Native American peoples, and it's almost impossible these days to talk about the pilgrims of Plymouth Colony without arousing the response that the Native Americans were here first. Well, of course they were. Empires had risen and fallen in the centuries earlier. In fact, the Aztec Empire fell exactly a hundred years before the pilgrims landed in the year uh, 1520. Um, before that, many other Native American peoples had formed into empires or alliances. The League of the Iroquois was created um, about uh, 300 years earlier than the Aztecs had been defeated. In North and South America, Peoples came and went under sometimes bloody and cruel rule, but those histories, as important as they are, are not the histories of the United States, and they have very little to do with what became the United States. So when we turn our attention to those things that stirred into life, the traditions, the ideals that became the basis for the Declaration of Independence in 1776, we have to think about what actually was created. What was created when the White Lion brought African slaves to Jamestown? Well, hardly anything at all. The slaves were turned into indentured servants and a few years released, and some of them prospered. Actual American slavery, as we know it from the 19th century, began a good deal later than that. The year 1619 is interesting. The House of Burgess was created in Virginia as a sort of captive government by the uh, private company that ran the Jamestown colony. But when we look at what happened at Plymouth, something quite different occurred. The ship was about half full of the people that we call the pilgrims. They were religious congregants who were descending from the Church of England. But the other half consisted of sailors and people that the uh, uh, pilgrims called strangers, that is, secular British people who were on their way to Virginia in order to become farmers and tradesmen. But because their ship was blown off course and came to what was then the wilderness of Massachusetts, a lot of dissension broke out on board. The strangers said, we're no longer bound by the contracts we signed on this voyage. We're going to be free and independent agents and do what we want whereas the religious community was concerned that a kind of anarchy would break out. So before they set foot on land, the strangers and the pilgrims came together and decided on what kind of conduct could hold their community together in some fashion against what they feared was going to be a brutal winter. They were right about that, and fear of Indian attacks, they were wrong about that. But in any case, a lot of hardship lay ahead, and they decided that they had better cooperate. 
they put their wish to cooperate together in about a 200-word document, and that document is what we call the Mayflower Compact. It did several things that were, in a way, breathtakingly new. It bound these people together under a rule of law. They decided that they were going to be a peaceful community and that they were going to seek to create what they called just laws. They wanted to be a civil society. And, and in this endeavor, they were going to elect leaders, and they were committed to treating one another equally. There would be no discrimination between the strangers and the pilgrims. They would be all one community. They would unite for self-defense. They were going to govern themselves as what we would now call a New England town, and they actually set the template for what became one of the cradles of American democracy, the small self-governing community that was made up of voluntary uh, commitment on the part of the participants, not something imposed from without. They saw themselves as ultimately under the rule of the King of England, but the King of England was far away and they had no way to communicate with him. British law was there only as a notional background. It was not what was going to be enforced day to day. Those laws were the laws that the pilgrims and the strangers together created for themselves. And they did some truly remarkable things. They abolished hierarchy. There was no difference between the rich and the poor, the young and the old. They treated one another as though they were members of a community. And because they were committed to that ideal, they largely achieved it. It was not that it was easy going for them. A great many died during that first winter. They also were in fear of attack, both by the Native Americans and by the French, who were in the vicinity and not welcoming of British involvement. So they formed for the common defense. And as it happened, they were able to strike up alliances with Native American tribes. Uh, they became in, involved in one alliance, which lasted for over 50 years. They became uh, a reliable partner to Native Americans who not only taught them the ways of living in the New England landscape, but the ways of coping with their adversaries. This was uh, a remarkable achievement. It's one that we mythologize, perhaps, in creating sentimental stories about what happened with the pilgrims and with the strangers. But in fact, it was a remarkable story. And it laid the, the template. It the, gave us the basic pattern of what we were to become as a people over the next 150 years or so. They were the predicate to the declaration of the summer of 1776. We should keep that in mind as the season of Thanksgiving, if we can still call it that, came upon us. We should recognize that this community was founded on a principle of gratitude and that can be strongly contrasted with that 1619 project which calls for conceiving of the beginning of America as an act of oppression and one which should give rise to resentment. Should we found our nation on the principle of loving one another, of seeking gratitude for the good fortune that we can govern ourselves in a civilized way, or should we look upon ourselves as the legacy of a slaveocracy, as the 1619 Project puts it? I think there's a pretty clear choice here that if we're looking for the antecedents of 1776, they're best found in November of 1620. Well, it has been an incredible time learning about the Mayflower Compact and its significance and relevance today. And we have asked Dr. Alan Gelzo, who is a visiting fellow at the Simon Center for American Studies and the Fulner Institute at the Heritage Foundation, and Senior Research Scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University and Director of the James Madison Program's Initiative in Politics and Statesmanship to do us the honor of closing us out. Dr. Gelzo is an acclaimed scholar of American history whose writings have been recognized as among the most important contributions to scholarly and public understanding of the 19th century America. His book, Abraham Lincoln, 
Redeemer President received the 2000 Lincoln Prize as well as the 2000 Book Prize of the Abraham Institute of the Mid-Atlantic. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Alan Gelzo. The Mayflower Compact is the shortest of all great American political documents, just 197 words, far shorter than even the Gettysburg Address. It's not necessarily unusual in that way because it's not a legal declaration or a set of statutes. It is more nearly kin to the preamble to the Constitution, since it simply pledges that for our better ordering and preservation, the colonists whom the Mayflower had brought to the coast of New England enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, to which the signatories pledged all due submission and obedience. What is remarkable about the Mayflower Compact is not that it says so little, but that it should have existed at all. The political world of the Mayflower Pilgrims, the world, in other words, of the English 17th century, was not significantly different from what had prevailed in England for a thousand years. It was hierarchical in that it envisioned an ordered society of kings, nobles, and commoners. It was traditional in the sense that it was largely governed by the proverbial wisdom of common law, but it was also local since the English thought of themselves less as a single nationality and more as a composite of local identities. There was no central army, no regular system of direct taxation, and when it was argued that among transitory things we are principally bound to our native country, the English meant by our native country Kent or Suffolk or Yorkshire, and not just any ordinary English environs. There were 122 peers of the realm, 36 bishops, and 1,500 knights, but it was the 10,000 or so local gentry who mattered most within each county community and who gave hierarchy its practical meaning. The Mayflower Pilgrims may be said to have taken localism to a point beyond which even hierarchy dropped by the way. They were Protestants in an officially Protestant realm and, by simple definition as subjects of that realm, members of the National Protestant Church, the Church of England. But like so much else in English life, the Church of England was itself a highly localized affair. A bishop in one diocese might be an ardent Calvinist after the model of the Reformation in Geneva, while another in another diocese might entertain a Protestantism of a more high church order. Nowhere else in early modern Europe within a legally established church, wrote the great ecclesiastical historian Patrick Collinson, was so much collective religious consciousness and behavior conditioned not by regulation, but by a more or less spontaneous consensus of private men, the religious public themselves. However, even that amount of ecclesiastical variety was unacceptable to the pilgrims. They defined the ideal Protestant church purely as a congregation, which is to say, entirely voluntary, and therefore an entirely local assembly, bound together by covenants made between people who knew and who could vouch for each other's true dedication to the Reformed faith. As New England's most magisterial early historian, Cotton Mather, wrote, they did like those Macedonians that are therefore by the Apostle Paul commended, give themselves up first unto God and then to one another. The arrival of the pilgrims in a good harbor in New England on November 11th, 1620, and their subsequent planting of a settlement that they named Plymouth, was not as easy a task as it appeared. There were 3,000 miles between them and anything that looked like Europe, 
and there were no peers, no bishops, no knights, and no gentry to call upon for direction and succor. No matter. They were used to taking charge of their own affairs and the general good. And with only the most token acknowledgement of the King of England, that is precisely what they proposed to do. They made an unusually cooperative bargain with the local Wampanoag tribe, which got them, barely, through the harshness of their first year at Plymouth. They invented a local government, based on an elected governor, William Bradford, a council of assistants, and a larger general court. And when they thought about political authority, they found it in themselves. No imposition, law, or ordinance can be made or imposed on us, they concluded in 1636, but such as shall be made by consent. They were used to covenanting with each other in religion. They did so in politics as well. In so doing, they were part of a pattern which made the English-speaking settlements which followed them very unlike the hierarchical and traditional world they had left behind. England was a world of functionaries and peasants. The American colonies were a population of artisans and yeomen, owning their own land and creating their own self-governing assemblies in their own settlements, without much of a by-your-leave to the imperial establishment in London. By the time we strike the midpoint of the 18th century, something like English gentrification is beginning to make its first appearance, and perhaps if those settlements had followed that arc of development undisturbed for another century, America might indeed have come to resemble, at last, the hierarchy of old England. Instead, the colonies erupted into rebellion, and a rebellion which borrowed much of its intellectual firepower from the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment's banishment of hierarchy in physics and in political theory. Except, of course, that the dismissals of hierarchy, which were in Enlightenment Europe matters of political theory, were simply to Americans what they had been practicing all along since 1620. Many years after the Revolution, a curious chronicler pressed one of the militia captains who had fought the British infantry at Concord for the reason why. Young man, replied Levi Preston of Danvers, what we meant in going after those redcoats was this. We had always governed ourselves, and we always meant to. There is a bright line between the Mayflower Compact and Captain Preston. It was a bright line which reached beyond to Alexis de Tocqueville's astonishment at the vitality of America's voluntary societies, still compacting together to do for themselves what distant authorities had no interest in doing. It is a bright line which today connects to our neighborhoods, our corner churches, our PTAs, our Fourth of July committees. It is a bright line which has at its core religious self-determination, the conviction that what one does and says in communion with one's God is a matter of one's own concern and does not belong to the oversight of other authorities. Wrapped around that core is the understanding that one's relationship with others must be defined and restrained by law, but law arrived at by common consent, and that just and equal laws will foster the free exchange of what ensures our better ordering and preservation. Our world today is infinitely more complicated than the world of the pilgrims, and so much so that we are frequently tempted to turn back and seek shelter in newer, more totalizing forms of hierarchy, only to discover the shelter of that sort comes at the price of self-government. But through the murk and confusion of our times, the bright line drawn from the Mayflower still pierces the clouds and continues to draw us forward today. Hi, I'm Katie Gorka, Director for Civil Society in the American Dialogue, 
at the Heritage Foundation's Fulner Institute. Thank you for joining us for this journey back to one of our nation's truly great moments. Isn't it amazing to think that what those 41 signatories started 400 years ago, under such humble and difficult conditions, has not only survived all this time, it has thrived. The seed they planted grew into a nation that has become a beacon of freedom, economic, political, and religious freedom for people across the globe. Today, it's our responsibility, but it's also our privilege to nurture what they started and to continue this extraordinary experiment in self-governing, ordered liberty that is the United States of America. Thank you.